All right, let's take our Bibles, open up to the book of Esther in the Old Testament, chapter 2. Esther, chapter 2. And if you're using one of the church Bibles, you'll find this text on page 410. And while you're finding that, let me remind you um, of one of the greatest, most well-known conflicts in world history. It was called the Battle of Thermopylae. Uh, On the road to Athens, if you're not familiar, uh, I believe it was around 7,000 Greeks is our best guess. They marched out to block the path of the invading Persians. Uh, Greeks were led by King Leonidas. The Persians were led by King Xerxes. Um, Ancient historians put them at like a million or more. Probably 100, 150,000 is a good guess of the number of soldiers on the Persian side. Still, for that time, uh, an enormous number. Um, But the problem is that someone betrayed the Greeks and showed the Persians a narrow workaround pass. Greeks found out about that And so they end up sending most of their force in retreat, but they left a small group, about a thousand people, uh, including the famous 300 Spartans. And they all get slaughtered, they all die, um, but they, in, in, in the process, you know, kind of like our own Alamo, they actually, for, for quite some time, I think it was about three days, they managed to hold off the invading Persians so that the Greek army can retreat and mount a defense for later on. Um, war then, after Thermopylae, continues for another two years, uh, but the Persians, because of King Xerxes, were ill-equipped in both uh, style of fighting and equipment. Uh, the Greeks had better strategy. They, uh, had, they um, invented this maneuver called the phalanx with the, the shields, if you've seen pictures of that. Um, so the, the Persians, the invading army, they ultimately lost the war, and it all began at Thermopylae. Some of you have seen the battle uh, depicted in the movie 300. How many of you have seen the movie 300? All right, I'm going to pray for all of you. For those of you who haven't seen it, you're not missing much. (laughs) It's horrible. Well, that's just your opinion, Trav. Eh, No, I'm pretty sure Jesus is with me on this one. Uh, But if you want to learn about the Battle of Thermopylae, can I recommend to you a book titled Gates of Fire by Stephen Pressfield? Um, It reads like a novel, but it's very well researched. Uh, If you enjoy a strong, manly book, this is the kind of novel you read it, and after a few chapters, you want to do push-ups and break stuff. (laughs) It's it's fantastic. Point is, 2,500 years after the battle depicted in that movie and depicted in this book and told a thousand different times, 2,500 years later, we're still telling the story about this King Xerxes, also known as Ahasuerus, um, who has to return to Persia a failure because he lost the battle and then he lost the war that he never should have lost. And all of that happened in the three years between Esther chapter 1 and Esther chapter 2. All of that lies between these two chapters, and it sets up everything that we're going to read this morning. The book that is open on your lap, the book of Esther, the genre Among the 66 books in the Bible, the genre of Esther is historical narrative. It really happened. And all of that war stuff sets the stage for chapter 2. Because we got a 
defeated king who's badly in need of a new distraction and also a new queen. Esther 2, beginning at verse 1. This is probably, I think this is the longest text we'll take at once in this series, but we can, we can do it. Hear now the very word of the Lord. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel under custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them and let the young woman, woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king and he did so. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, son of Jair, son of Shemid, son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is, Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure, and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her to not make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now, when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go in, and in the morning, she would return to the second harem in custody of Shaskaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the 10th month, which is the month of Tibet, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Now, when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh 
two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Okay, uh, four, progr- um, uh, four uh, headers in the program you received uh, at the door when you came in. We will spend probably the longest on this first header, so don't freak out when, when we're like one quarter of the way through the sermon and we're about 27 minutes in. Uh, I promise you um, they're not all even. But the first, the first uh, header is the conceited king. The conceited king. Um, As Mark Batterson tells it, it was in 1960 that uh, an MIT meteorologist, his name was Lorenz, uh, he made an accidental discovery. Um, He was trying to develop a computer program that could accurately, more accurately, predict uh, weather patterns and um, conditions. But one day, while in a hurry, instead of entering in 0.506127, as he had in an earlier trial, He rounded to the nearest thousandth and put in 0.506. Figured that the the difference there would be inconsequential. Ran the program, left the lab. When he returned, he found a radical change in the projected weather conditions. Lorenz estimated that the numerical difference between the original number he had input and the rounded number that he had input to be roughly equivalent to a puff of wind Created by, do you guys know? A butterfly's wing. That's exactly right. Came to be known as the? A minor event. Like the flapping of a butterfly's wing can conceivably alter wind currents and change weather conditions thousands of miles away. And what's theory in science is true in life. This is good for us who are quite a bit younger to remember that small changes and small choices over time can be magnified into enormous consequences. In chapter 1, what did we see? We saw a foolish king throw a six-month drinking party essentially for self-promotion. On the party's last day, the intoxicated king decided to treat the men of his empire to a good look at his good-looking wife. But his wife said no. And now we have set in motion this this butterfly effect chain of events that's going to culminate toward the end of the book in the deliverance of God's people and directing all of it, church, The God who is unseen is the God behind the scene. If this is your first Sunday with us, really glad you're here. That's the theme of this entire book, that the God who is unseen is the God behind the scene. So if you're just jumping in today, uh, we got a 10-chapter book, and you want to know that it unfolds over a period of about 10 years. The Persians... They kept really, really good records, so we're uh, more able with a book like this to pinpoint almost precisely where we are on the timeline. It takes place, 10 chapters, 
over about 10 years, which means that if you read any one section of this book, if you read it in isolation, just a paragraph or just a chapter, it's very, very easy to miss the providential hand of God. This opening scene that we read a moment ago is a great example because we got a depressed, brooding king. The, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, that's the furthest thing from his mind. He's egocentric in the extreme, but even Xerxes can't deny that that Greek military campaign was an absolute failure. So what do his advisors say to him? They gather around him and they say, hey, king, we need to get you some women. A lot of women. We need to get you a new wife. How are we going to do this? We should, we should like gather them all up and have some sort of contest. We'll call it like, um, like Persia's Got Talent. And one of the other advisors says, no, no, no. Let's call it, let's call it Persian Idol. <laughs> one of the other advisors says, no, 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 no. I, we'll call it The Bachelor Winter Palace Edition. This one was exactly what happens. They say, the king needs a distraction. Let's use all the resources of the Persian Empire to gather up really pretty girls, and we'll just let the king try each one out. Because Persia was a really hard place to be a woman. Uh, Josephus, the Jewish historian, um, who's very helpful to us, uh, he records that it would have been about 400 virgins in total that were, you know, they whittled down all from across the empire down to about 400 women here who got taken into the palace. They go through this 12-month training and beautification program. We got cosmetics and moisturizers and training in court etiquette, and the adults in the room will appreciate training in a number of other things as well over that time. It's sexist. It's exploitative, it's misogynistic, and I don't know, dads of girls, as we were reading through it, did it, did it, did it begin to come across your mind? You know, I, I wonder how many of these beautiful girls hid or, or very, very quickly tried to get married to avoid this whole thing. Or on the converse, how many, of, how many girls across the empire thought to themselves, well, maybe this is my way out of poverty. This, this is my one chance at royalty. I'm going to throw myself into it. How many dads and daughters who understood all that this contest would mean would have lied and denied that they had a virgin daughter at all? I mean, just imagine the scene. Um, verse 14 Understand, verse 14, it makes it clear to us that for all of these women who were summoned to the king's palace, three options, that was it, would have laid ahead of them. Three options. Option number one, you spend one night with Xerxes. Maybe you get called back now and then if he's interested. But either way, you're a permanent concubine. You're never allowed to marry because we've got to protect the king's fragile ego. And we can't ever have the king being compared to another man by a woman who's already been with the king. And so she can't ever be with another man at all. That's option number one. Option number two, you're one of the very few girls who gets chosen as one of his wives. Option number three, you're the one woman 
who gets chosen as his queen. But you're still property. And remember the goal all along here, right? It's explicit up there in verse 2. We want to find a woman who's young, beautiful, and a virgin. Assessing character does not appear to have crossed anybody's mind here. Because Persia was obsessed with appearances. A woman's value was bound up in her looks and her sexuality. Aren't you glad we don't have to live back then? Wouldn't that be a hard culture to raise girls? And then we remember, oh yeah, chapter two here. This is almost literally one of our own American reality shows. Season premiere, Monday night, who wants to marry a wicked Persian narcissist? You know, in the midst of so much brokenness, and we're just scratching the surface here, you guys understand that, that it's hard to see God here. I'll be the first to admit that. Because if we don't know our Bibles, if all we have stored up We haven't given ourselves to a study of the scripture. If all we're we're leaning on is some Sunday school stories that we learned up through age 10, then it's easy to begin to imagine that when God shows up to help us when we're in trouble, if God is around, that when God shows up, he always does so in spectacular fashion, right? It's, it's going to be pillar of fire. It's going to be walking through the Red Sea. It's going to be 10 plagues to save his people. If that's all we've got, it's going to be really hard to recognize the presence of God in most of our day to day. It's easy when three teenagers get saved from the fiery furnace because they wouldn't bow down to the golden idol. It's easy to say in that story, yes, there's God at work. It's a lot harder to see a king who's now drunk, objectifying women, and say, hey, there's God at work. But he is. He absolutely is. It's a spiritual butterfly effect that he's directing here. Remember this, church, that in the midst of messy, broken decisions made by flawed and sinful people, God is always behind the scenes still. This is Joseph's confession in Genesis 50, right? What man intends for evil, God intends for. And we hang our hat on verses like that one. It's why we regularly sing of God's providence. I am not skilled to understand what God has willed, what God has planned. I only know at his right hand stands one who is my savior. All right, so we got the conceited king and this whole twisted beauty pageant thing. Now speed it up. Let's take a quick look at the adopted dad. His name is Mordecai. Um, his Israelite family, got, they got swept up in the Babylonian exile uh, like 100, 120 years before this. Um, uh, but then Persia comes along and Persia gobbles up Babylon. Uh, and Persia, they're a little more relaxed and they tell all of the Jews who had been exiled in the Babylonian captivity, hey, you know what? If you want, you can just go back to Israel now. But Mordecai's family, they didn't. 
they stayed in a pagan, idol-worshiping culture. Verse 7, Mordecai has Esther there. Uh, Biologically, she's his cousin, but he's older than her, and so he takes her as his own daughter because she's orphaned, um, which is a very admirable thing. But then it, it doesn't appear that he really did anything to oppose this royal edict to gather up all the pretty girls. There, there seems to be here no hint of the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego t- kind of defiance. No, we won't bow down. You know, there, there, there's, there's nothing here like, um, like Daniel continuing to pray in the open window despite the threat of the lion's den. And so you can't help but read about this guy and we're just getting to know him and wonder... <laughs> Where's the courage, Mordecai? On one hand, well, what could he do? On the other hand, where's the resolve to protect Esther? One of the old Jewish commentators, his name is Abraham Saba, he says it like this. Now, when Mordecai heard the king's herald announcing that whoever had a daughter or a sister should bring her to the king to have intercourse with an uncircumcised heathen, Why did he not risk his life to take her to some deserted place to hide until the danger would pass? He should have been killed rather than submit to such an act. And some of us are thinking, if it was my daughter, I'd put up a fight. I wonder if we don't find in Mordecai here a man who's living something of a compromised life. You know, in some ways, he's a really admirable guy. But then again, if he had returned to Israel in the first place, then Esther would have been far less of a target than she, than she is. Instead, he permits his adopted daughter to get caught up in all this garbage. He's cut off from the community of faith. He's successfully pretending, along with his adopted daughter, not to be a child of the true and living God. Presumably, that's been going on for years and years and years. And this is exactly the kind of thing that makes Esther so relevant for us today. Because how many of us in this sanctuary would be prepared to say today, I am mostly like Daniel, (laughs) standing against the lions? And how many of us would be prepared to admit, I'm... I'm a little bit more like Mordecai. (laughs) Sort of a Christian, but sort of not. Sort of disobedient, but also sort of obedient. I'm trying to follow the Bible, but not always. Privately, I believe in God, but publicly, not so much. And we have to ask, (laughs) is God willing to use people this messy? This complicated. So we got the conceited king, we met the adopted dad, and now we meet the gorgeous girl. The gorgeous girl. And to the king and his advisors, you understand, that's all that she was. Verse 7 she had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. That's what they care about. But then the author lets us in on a little bit more there. Verse 9. We learn this woman, there's more to this woman than meets the eye. Verse 9, the young woman 
pleased Haggai and won his favor. And that literally translates out, she lifted up grace before his face. Isn't that good? And Esther, she's, she's not just a flat, two-dimensional character with a pretty face. This is a woman who had a knack for winning the favor of everyone that she met. She's a beautiful girl with charm and secrets. Her name was Hadassah, that's Jewish. Her name was Esther, that's Persian. She's the only character in the story who's given two names because she has to live throughout the entire thing in two worlds. And as the story moves along here, we're going to begin to realize she's got political savvy. She has insight into how people think and how people work and what motivates them. But don't miss this. She's caught in a system here that grinds women up and spits them out. That's why it is so important to regularly pull back and recognize the quiet providence of God. That God has a plan for this girl. And I hope that that offers a measure of encouragement to those in this room who have at some point in the past, been used or abused. That God is not finished with you. God has a purpose for you. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. I remember having this experience with uh, um, when we went through the book of Ecclesiastes, for those of you who are here um, a few years back, um, the, 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 the deeper we go now into Esther, the, the more amazed I am at this book's contemporary relevance. Because there's nothing, there's nothing simple in this book. For instance, how would you use this episode from Esther's life to teach virtue to your teenage daughter. What, what's the lesson here? Make yourself as attractive as possible for powerful men. Use your body to advance God's kingdom. I don't think that's it. See, the author is intentionally painting a morally ambiguous and complex picture because this is how real life works. It's, it's easy for us to talk about moral and ethical issues in the abstract as Christians in a Bible study. You know, from the pews here, it's easy to talk through and imagine what we would do and how we would do it. But then we also know almost the moment our feet hit the pavement outside these doors, week after week, we begin to get confronted with situations that there does not appear to be any clear right or wrong. Situations come up in our families, in our workplaces, with our friends, that is just this mixture of good and bad, and how do we separate it out? That's what Esther, too. We got this orphaned girl thrown into this storm, and she ought to be crushed by the system. But instead we begin to realize 
that God likes to use the weakest of his servants to accomplish the greatest of his works. And so over 10 chapters in a period of 10 years, this book shows us a God who's sovereignly setting in motion this this spiritual butterfly effect that's ultimately going to save an entire people. And we're realizing this is how God works. God likes to use the weakest of his servants to accomplish the greatest of his works. Which then leads us to the final point in your outline. We got the conceited king. We met the adopted dad, the gorgeous girl. Last one, and we're out. A couple conniving guards. A couple conniving guards. Uh, Verse 21 shows us uh, two guys who were tasked with guarding the king's door. They were eunuchs, and they're plotting to kill the king. I'll be honest with you. If the king made me a eunuch, I'd probably want to kill the king as well. I do have some sympathy for old Big Thin and Teresh here. In fact, we've talked a lot about the abuse of women, but Herodotus, the Greek historian, lets us know that hundreds of boys were taken every year across the Persian Empire and castrated so as to serve in the Persian court. The the point is that for, for King Xerxes, everyone, male and female, was at the disposal of the king. Well, Mordecai, um, he's kind of like an undercover investigator at a few chapters um, across this book. So here, he finds out about the plot to take out the king. He reports it to Esther. She reports it to the king. The guards get executed, and nothing gets done for Mordecai here, except his name gets written down, verse 23, in some book. It's a throwaway line. It's hardly noticeable when we read it. It's only relevant when you flip the the story forward a few pages to chapter 6 and verse 1, and we find that the king has insomnia. (laughs) Why in chapter 6, verse 1, does the king have insomnia? Too much stress? Mm. Too much pizza the night before? Mm. Too many women in his life? (laughs) That one seems likely for him. Actually, chapter 6, verse 1 God wants the king to have insomnia. So to try and sleep, the king calls for an audio (laughs) book. And the book he chooses to have read to him happens to be the one where Mordecai's name was written down. And that realization is going to launch an entirely new chain of events later on in our study this summer. See, happenstance is not by chance. This is a God-ordained butterfly effect. The drunkenness of a king in chapter 1 will 10 years later in chapter 10 lead to the salvation of the Jews. And all along the way, God is pleased to use the weakest of his servants to accomplish the greatest of his works. J.I. Packer, he defines providence as God's purposeful, personal lordship over all things. God's purposeful, personal lordship over all things. And so as, as we work through this book, if you're beginning to get the sneaking suspicion, I, 
I might not just be a bag of molecules. <laughs> there, there might, in fact, be purpose to my life and my kids and those around me. Can I say to you, friend, it's time to receive Christ as your Savior. It's time to bend the knee to this God who exercises personal, purposeful lordship over all things. And Esther's the example. She was nearly crushed by a sin-soaked system. She was used and abused, yet God is going to overrule all of her pain and all of her shame and he's going to save her people. She was an orphan. She was a Jew. She was a woman. A combination which immediately puts you on the margins of society. God's going to overrule all of that. And he's going to make her matter. She has no power. She has no influence. Yet God's going to overrule all of that. And he's going to make her queen. 1 Corinthians 1 says... God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised the things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are so that no person might boast in the presence of God. And that's how the kingdom of God gets built. It's not with, it's not with the high and the mighty. It's not with the the celebrity, the one with the megaphone. God likes to use the weakest of his servants to accomplish the greatest of his works. Thank you for joining us for today's message. Medway Community Church would love to welcome you as our guest one day soon. Our church family meets every Sunday morning for worship and also offers a wide variety of small group and ministry opportunities. To learn more, please visit us on the web at medwaycommunitychurch.org. We look forward to seeing you soon. Washing all my shame.